good day, hasn't it? It's been, the weather was gorgeous. It was awesome to get outside. Funny, this message tonight, I, uh, Erica asked me to, you know, she, again, here she is. She tells me what we're going to be talking about. She's like, I want you to talk about being flawed over the facade. And I was like, oh, good. I like flawed over the facade because it means that she clearly thinks that I am very um, flawed. <laughs> And my flaws are just evident all over my body, all over my um, world. And we were joking about it in our room last night because I said, you know, I want you to take a lot of pride in, like, how organized I was and how put together I was, how my house looked so clean. You know, it's always so neat and tidy. And there must have been an element of pride there that the Lord decided he needed to strip from me and he needed to strip it six times. I just became a little more flawed, and a little more flawed, and a little more flawed to the point where I was like, I got nothing left. There's no, we can't go any lower. And then my husband brings home a dog. I mean, I don't know why he keeps coming up. I really don't have much of a love relationship with him. But. Anyway, I flawed over facade is, is like, that's me. I don't have, I can't pretend. I wish that I could pretend to have it together. It would be real nice. <laughs> to like be able to like, okay, yeah, I'm doing good. But I wear my stuff all over my body. Like people are coming up to me and going, can I pray over you? And they're both speak because you look like you got some, you look heavy. And I'm heavy tonight. You know why? Um, I, I had a great day. I was, Erica gave us permission to be fully present here. And when, and I gotta tell you, when I wrote down on my little card, what I wrote down on there was my messages <laughs> that I threw over my shoulder. <laughs> and so I was like, I've got to just relax and let this go. And so today, my, my friend and I, we went into town, we had some ice cream, it was great, it was wonderful. Then I came home and I was like, I'm gonna be fully present, I'm gonna get in my bed, and I'm going to take a nice nap. Oh, this is going to be so good. And then I'll still have time to wake up, you know, kind of put the last finishing touches on this message and get on down here. And lo and behold, um, in my mind, my message started at 820. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? This is pretty small print. Next time, if we do this, it's a little larger. It's like, I have 820. That's when my message starts. Good. I got all this time. And so then my girlfriend asked me, she goes, are you going down to dinner? And I said, yeah. She goes, what time does it start? And I was like, oh, let me look. Six o'clock. She's like, then what time's the session? I'm like, 
Philippians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling because it was none other than God who was in their midst working in them both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul then goes from preaching to them to meddling. He gets right into the heart of all of our stuff and he's going to address real heart issues here. He applies it specifically by telling them and us to do all things without grumbling and disputing. All things? <laughs> I mean, like, everything? <laughs> all things. In this context, he's especially exhorting us against grumbling and disputing against one another in the church. I'm sure that doesn't happen. <laughs> because he has been urging us to adopt the humble, self-sacrificing servant way of Jesus. Jesus humbled himself. Didn't consider his own interests, but looked to the interests of others. Why do we complain? Because we're thinking about ourselves. I'm uncomfortable. I don't like this. I don't want this. But to grumble against any person or any circumstance is really to grumble against the sovereign God who wills and works all things in our lives. So Paul's exhortation means that we have to do, what we have to do is to confront our grumbling and our griping and our complaining and our disputing as sin. It's a sin. It, I still struggle with this problem, as most of us probably do, and that's part of this whole thing of being flawed, right? We're flawed. I can't hide it. It doesn't mean I flaunt it. Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? May it never be. We don't keep on sinning. If we've been confronted with our sin, we have to address it as sin. We don't go on sinning saying, oh, God, he's so gracious. He loves me so much. He'll forgive me. I wish Paul had been a little bit more realistic, though, don't you? A little more down to earth. He could have said, try, friends, to do most things or some things without grumbling or disputing. That's realistic, isn't it? Give it a try. But all things, all things. In fact, the word translated all things is emphatic in the Greek text. Paul isn't going to let us off the hook, and his reason for this commandment concerns our individual, our individual, my testimony, and our corporate testimony as a body of Christ, as a body of believers. Before a broken and depraved generation, a broken world, Paul's own example shows that not only are we not to grumble and dispute, but we are to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Sisters, our theme this week is shine. This is the message. This is the theme message. We shine to this world, to this crooked and twisted generation, when we do all things without grumbling and complaining, and when we are blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. That's when we shine. That's when we shine. Paul here can refer to Christians as children of God. Now, 
there's some um, question about this because a lot of people say like, oh, we're all children of God. And ladies, that's a falsity. God created us all. We were all created by God. But you are not a child of God until you trust Christ as your Savior and you make him your Lord. Then you become children of God. Then you are a child of the King of Kings. Then you are his daughter. Then you are a princess in the kingdom. We are all created by God, but we are not all children of God. A specific Old Testament passage um, is behind Paul's words here, and it's from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5. In this song of Moses, Moses is uh, the leader of the Israelite nation. We've talked about referring to the Israelites in the Old Testament, um, and I'm going to be referring to them some more, but Moses was a leader in the Old Testament, and he's referring to the grumbling and the unbelief of the children of Israel in the wilderness. God had them in the wilderness for 40 years. Because they did something that they weren't supposed to, they disobeyed, they disbelieved God, and they were subjected to the wilderness for 40 years. They have acted, okay, Moses says, they have acted corruptly towards him, and they are not his children because of their defects, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Paul turns that around and says that we are God's children living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And thus, we must be careful not to grumble and dispute, as Israel did in the wilderness. Because as God's people, we are supposed to shine forth the light in this dark world, holding forth um, to people the word of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Children reflect their parents. Of course, all children are selfish and rebellious and sinners by nature. And if you didn't know that, if you wonder why your child can be the way they can be, it's because they were born in sin. We were born in sin. And so we are not reflecting our father until he becomes our father and we are his children. They are all immature and express themselves in inappropriate ways. They all grumble at times. No child is sinless. But even so, children will take on the behaviors and the attitudes and the words of their parents. That is so convicting, isn't it? Don't you just hate it when you see in that child what, like, you. It's like, oh, I am the one that taught them that. (laughs) Do what I say, not what I do. If a child is stolen and unhappy and always complaining about life, it doesn't speak well of their parents. It may mean that the parents are truly loving, caring people who provide well for their children, but the child's bad attitude makes people think poorly of the parent. No matter how good that parent really is. The point is that we have to keep in mind is that as children of the Heavenly Father, He is perfect in all of His ways. But let's face it, sometimes his ways lead us into the wilderness where there are hardships. When you read Exodus, you see how God delivered Israel from Egypt in a powerful way. He sent the plagues, then he led Israel to the edge of the Red Sea, and he brought Pharaoh's army on their heels. He miraculously parted the sea so that Israel could march through on dry ground, 
and then he brought the sea back on top of the Egyptian army. I think God was looking out for his children. I think he was working in their lives. He was moving them. <coughs> then after this amazing demonstration of God's power, and after his care for his chosen people, we read next that they came to a place three days' journey into the wilderness. They've just, okay, they're going to be in the wilderness for a long time. They're three days in. Where there was no water. Coming right on the heels of this amazing victory, all of this stuff that God did, and just after the Song of Moses celebrating the victory, when we read about their lack of water, what, what do you think? They say, so what? God who just parted the sea can provide water. But instead we read that the people grumbled against Moses. What in the world? You brought us out here in this wilderness, in this desert where there's no water. What are you thinking? But look, I mean, it's like we have such short-term memory loss, don't we? Yes. It's like just yesterday, just this morning, ladies, got so faithful to give me a message for you. And I'm like, oh, Lord, I don't have time to get this message from you. What are you going to say to these people? I've already forgot his goodness this morning. Israel already forgot God's goodness. Then we read how they grumbled because there was no food in Exodus chapter 16, verse 2. So, the Lord just graciously provides them manna from heaven. Then they grumbled because there was no meat. They were like, oh man, I'm getting tired of this bread. I want some real food. Give me some real food, God. So the Lord provided quail. God was so gracious. If this was my kids and I was, I would be like, you're eating what I put in front of you, kids. You better do it without complaining or arguing. I'm your mama. <laughs> then they ran out of water again, and they grumbled again, and the Lord again provided water in chapter 17. Verse 3. But in their grumbling against Moses, and in their grumbling and disputing with him, they were really grumbling and disputing against the Lord. This was a bad testimony to the nations around them, that the God who had provided a mighty deliverance from Israel, for Israel, would not also provide for their basic needs. It's like sometimes we trust God with the big stuff, but it's like the little stuff. What about the little stuff? I want, I want this, and I want that, and I want this. Don't you see God? He's doing immeasurably more than you could ask or imagine. And yet it's like just a little bit more. Would you just do a little bit more? This reflected badly on God's love and his care and his power to provide. Not because God wasn't doing it, but because the people weren't content with it. The pagan nations around them who were looking for a reason to justify their rebellion against the living God would scoff at God when they heard their grumbling and complaining. Instead of say, wow, what is God doing? He's amazing, this God of Israel. Who is this God of Israel? I want that God. That's Paul's point in our text. We live, guys, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation that refuses to submit, refuses to worship Jesus, 
They refuse to bow their knee. They refuse to confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. It's a world marked by grumbling and complaining and discontentment. Debbie pointed out this morning um, that in the beginning, when Satan originally tempted Eve in the garden, he caused her to doubt. He lied to her. And he caused her to doubt the goodness of God. And ever since, he seeks to do the same with you and me. He wants us to doubt his goodness. How could Israel doubt God's goodness? He had been so faithful to them to lead them out of, out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of that dark place. He walked them across water that he split in two, and he crushed their enemies. And would he not also provide food and water? God cares for you. He loves you. He wants you to doubt his goodness, to complain against what he's doing in your life, because people won't trust a God whose goodness is in question. So here are God's people, delivered from bondage to sin by God's mighty salvation through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, they have seen his power. They have seen him alive and working. Paul says that there are three things that should mark children of God, especially in trials. I mean, there's many things, but in this particular text, these three things should mark we should be blameless and innocent and above reproach. Blameless, innocent, and above reproach. Blameless has the nuance of moral integrity as seen by others. It points to our outwardly observable behavior, including our attitudes. Nothing in our lives should give an occasion for scandal. <clears throat> scandal? Bringing that back up. Where unbelievers could look at how we live and say, Mm. I thought she was a Christian. How can Christian be like this? A great example of a blameless man is Daniel in the Bible. He lived in Babylon and he served in a pagan government. When his enemies wanted to find some charge against him to bring him down because they were jealous of his position, they finally concluded we shall not find any grounds of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Daniel lived with integrity. Don't you want that to be said of you? That, that when people observe your life, that they say, man, that woman is solid. She's blameless. We're also called to be innocent. This word focuses on an inward moral integrity that is the, pro uh, that is the proper root of outward blameless behavior. So inside, on the inside, we have strong moral integrity. It focuses on what, we are, what our thought life is like before God. It's possible to put a, a good, on a good front in the church, isn't it? And sometimes we might be leading a double life. You can be on the on the serving, you can be serving in the children's ministry at church, but really struggling with addiction to pornography or reading romance novels. 
You can be attending an RC on Thursday night and be in the club on Friday. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know anybody, so it's <laughs> All sins start in our thoughts and in our minds. Thus, we have to judge our sinful thoughts and take every thought captive. Take every thought captive into obedience with Christ so that we will be not only blameless, not only on the outside, but on the inside. We will be innocent. Then we must also be above reproach. And uh, there's another word for it in this passage. It says um, blameless and then it's oh, blameless and innocent without blemish. So that's above reproach. It's a, it's a summary of the other two, and it means without blemish. But Paul says that the children of God are not to be fault finders and gripers. We are to be without blemish of, com of complaining because we want this crooked and perverse generation to know that our Heavenly Father is good and caring. Our testimony of Christ should be our, the most important thing on our minds so that we glorify Him by the way we live. I want... I want to shine the light of Jesus. I want people to look at my life, not for my glory, but for his glory. I want them to see me and say, man, there's something different. There's something different. As I said in the context, Paul means grumbling and disputing against one another, but all grumbling and disputing is against God, who is sovereign over our circumstances. Grumbling is used repeatedly of Israel in the wilderness, both are complaining to Moses as well as complaining about their circumstances. Moses was no perfect leader. No human leader is. No human leader is perfect. Your pastor, your pastor's wife, the leaders in this church, your elders, they're not perfect. You, we hold them to a high standard not because we expect that their life be blameless and that they be innocent and pure children of God, that they're, that they're backing up their lifestyle yeah. by what they're preaching, yeah. with what they're preaching by their lifestyle. But, but they're, not in a higher, they're not in a higher place, in a more holy place. You need to support and encourage your leaders. They need you. It's, they're not here just to serve you, not just to pour out over you, though that's one of the gifts that they give to you. But they need to hear from you words of encouragement, words of support, words of prayer, not grumbling and complaining. Oh, I don't like that worship leader. I wish we'd get her off the stage. What? She's serving you. Yeah. Oh, that message Pastor Aaron preached, it was like 55 minutes long. <laughs> a long message. Stop grumbling and complaining. Be grateful. You have a body of Christ and we can worship together as sisters and, and brothers in the Lord. Guys, it's a blessing. We don't understand. There is an underground church that does not get to express themselves. They don't get to hear the kind of teaching that you get to hear. You have a very gifted Yes. When we grumble about our church leaders, we don't like, when we grumble about a church leader we don't like or some trial that we're going through, we are really saying, God, you're not doing a very good job directing my life. Oh, Why am I out here in the wilderness? Why don't 
God. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. Notice the first sentence, that powerful command that is there. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Wherever you are, whomever you're with, no matter what time of day it is, no matter what circumstances are going on outside of you, no matter what's rumbling inside of you, do everything that you do without one word of complaint or a word of questioning. Imagine being in the marketplace of life around other people and who are not complaining because people are in, oh, who are not complaining. Imagine being a parent and not complaining about your children. Imagine being a child and not complaining about your parents. Imagine being a worker and not complaining about your boss. Imagine being a boss and not complaining about your worker. We are programmed in our society today to be discontent. The media and advertising encourage us to be discontent with the way things are, to want something more, to want something else. It seems if you study society and civilization that the more affluent our society gets, the less content we are. The more it has, the more it wants. We're bombarded with this fantasy through television, through movies, through advertising, and the media continually assaults our sense that with these alluring images and these unrealistic pictures of what things could be like if yeah. we had their product. Yep. This type of plastic perfection is a facade, ladies. It's not real life. Marissa talked about it. Facebook, when we put up the wonderful things that we are, we see the wonderful things that other people are doing, their amazing vacation, their super clean home, their whatever. <laughs> it's a facade. It's not the real everyday life of life. You're not with them every single minute of every single day. This, this is what we should be. This is what we should have. And we make this false assumption and formula and equation that if I just had that, that husband, that child, that house, that boat, that lake cottage, then I'd be happy. If I'd, if I'd be like that, I will be happy. When we get those things, or perhaps we don't get those things, we don't become happier. Mm -hmm. In fact, oftentimes we become even more discontent. Just like the Israelites, they wanted water, they got water. They wanted food, they got some food. Then they wanted better food, more food, lots of food. We have to understand that the heart behind what Paul is telling the church at Philippi and ultimately what he's saying to you and to me today is that in order to stand, understand um, how important this message is, it's that out of the attitude of our heart, our mouths speak. Luke chapter 6, verse 45, Jesus is talking to his disciples there. And he's saying, out of the heart, that's where the mouth speaks. The words of our mouths always reveal the condition of our heart. Grumbling and complaining is a powerful revelation of what's actually going on inside your heart. Yeah. I want to share two heart attitudes underneath this concept of grumbling. The first heart attitude is that I deserve better. Grumbling sticks you in the center of your universe. Grumbling 
actually makes you think that life is all about you. You know, we say this to our children sometimes, this life is not all about you. And the more kids you have, the more you say it. It's not all about you. Two hard attitudes. The first one is that uh, I deserve better. The grumbling says, this is not what a person like me deserves. You see, when I stand in front of that closet full of clothes, a lavish wardrobe that billions of people alive today would never have a fantasy that they would ever possess. Guys, some people have shorts and a t-shirt and flip-flops, and that's what they wear every day of their lives. And you're dissatisfied. And you say, I have nothing to wear. It's not that you have nothing to wear. It's that the particular thing that you want to wear doesn't have to happen to be hanging in that closet. This is self-focused, self-absorbed attitude that I, that I could look at lavish blessings, lavish blessings. We don't have just a little bit in our society. Yeah. We have a lot yes. and overabundance. I mean, just we were just walking downtown today, and we were, oh, America. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like every little shop. And how many ice cream stores in one little stretch? <laughs> this is a self-focused, self-absorbed attitude. I stand before my refrigerator. There's all kinds of food in there. Nothing to eat. We have other attitudes, too. Yep. See if any of these resonate with you. I shouldn't have people in front of me in line at the grocery store. <laughs> I should not have to wait all this whole two and a half minutes to be up to the front. I should not have to deal with people who think differently than me. Oh, man, I just wish we could all just get along. Everybody think the way I think, and we're good. <laughs> I should not have to deal with delay or difficulty or suffering of any kind. Oh, this is so hard. My every want should be indulged. My every need should be fulfilled. My every feeling should be taken seriously. Because I am me, and I deserve better. The second hard attitude that grumbling reveals is, I know better. I know better. I deserve better, and I know better. In other words, if I were ruling my world, if I were the sovereign one, if I was the one sitting on the throne, I wouldn't bring this thing into my life. I know better. Grumbling says, if I were sovereign, my life would be different. Grumbling puts you in the place of the divine. Puts you in the place of God the Father. God is sovereign over all things. He is working all things for the good who loved, of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God is working, ladies. Trust him. Believe him. The next word is disputing. It's from the Greek word, it's from a Greek word, all, all this stuff is from Greek. <laughs> and that's a little bit different because it's an inner reasoning. It's a complaining in my mind and in my heart. It's like arguing maybe with myself. It's 
all going on up here. I'm going to get my, um, I'm going to get my own back. Or maybe even arguing with God. Lord, this isn't right. Why is this happening to me? This isn't fair. But what Paul is really trying to get at in both of these verses is the emotional grumbling and the intellectual disputing and debating with yourself and with God all flow from the same spirit, and it's a spirit of pride. We're to do all things without this emotional murmuring and grumbling or this intellectual internal dialogue that you may be blaming that, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I want you to look at that phrase with me, among whom you shine as lights in the world. This is what the picture is. It's like the stars in the sky. Christ collects his people. God collects his children, the children of God. And he lights them with his grace. And he casts them into the human culture so that everywhere you look, the gospel, the light of the gospel is seen. I remember the first time that I really appreciated the vastness of the stars in the sky. I was in high school, and it was in Michigan, and like, there's no city lights, there's no lights, no nothing, mm-hmm. and it was at a camp kind of like this, and we were out on a pontoon boat in the middle of the lake, so it's like real dark, real dark, and when you laid down and looked up at the stars, it was like forever and forever and forever, and a million of them, almost to the point that the, the blueness or the blackness of the sky was less than the whiteness of the sky. And that's what this picture is. As far as you can look in every direction, you couldn't look in the sky without seeing light. There's, there's an encourage. This is not an encouragement to do something. So it's not like you go and be a light. It's a simple statement and a fact that Christians, those who are children of God, those who carry Christ within them, are lights in the world. The only question is how. How bright does that light shine? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How bright does your light shine? We are to fulfill our place as lights in the world. Lights are used to make this make things evident. Lights are used to guide and give direction. Lights are used as warnings. Lights are used to bring cheer. Hope. Lights are used to make things safe. God, in his grace and in his sovereign plan, scatters his people everywhere so that the halls of the hospital, there's light. In the lawyer's office, light is seen. In the university library, light is seen. In the grocery store, light is seen. On the streets of the city, light is seen. At the mall, in the suburbs, light is seen. In the morning, light is seen. In the afternoon, light is seen. In the evening, light is seen. 
so that you could not go anywhere in the wider community without being exposed to the light of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is working. He's alive and active. His people are everywhere. The Christian world is a really tiny world. It really is. A really tiny, let's see, it makes the world feel like a really tiny place. Because you can go all over the world and you can meet people who know and love Christ. It's amazing. That is a God of magnificent love who would spread his light like stars in the universe so that they could be seen by those who so desperately need the light of his grace. You are children of God. Girls, you have been invited into the family of God. That means that you have been called to be a representative of that family. Some friends of mine, and some of you know them, the Runquist family, they have four children. And I remember, I've known them for many years, and they have a motto. Um... The mom and dad, Keith and Debbie, would say to their kids, your last name is Runquist, your father is Keith, your mother is Debbie. Everywhere you go, every decision you make, somehow, some way, you represent the Runquist family, and you represent God. And their motto was, a Runquist, I actually called them, because I was like, I remember, there's this one phrase I remember, but I need the other two. Can you give me the other two? So she says, a Runquist is a hard worker who loves Jesus and eats ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) And sadly, I remember the who eats ice cream. (laughs) I don't remember those. We must understand our identity as children of God. We carry the family name. We represent God our Father. We are representatives of the family wherever we are. We define what our family is all about. And we are meant to make God visible. To make the grace and love of God visible to others. To make the invisible kingdom become visible by the way we live. This is not something you do once in a while. Or like when I'm feeling it, I'm going to let my light shine today. That is your identity wherever you have been placed by the one who is your father. You've been scattered as representatives. You are a child of God that you may be blameless and innocent. He's not talking about personal perfection here. This is where I think the tie comes in that aspect of being. We're not expecting perfection. He's not talking about putting on a facade. He knows that you're flawed, ladies. In fact, in Jude, he says, he alone is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless, blameless in the world before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Instead, what he's talking clearly about here is a reputation that you would represent the gospel well. That there would not be some way, somehow, a gospel contradiction with the way that you live, but rather by the beauty of your joy, by the sweetness of your contentment, by the depth of your gratitude, by the way that you're willing to let 
your flaws hang out and say, I don't have it all together, but I'm trusting Christ, that people around you would, would be intrigued by what, what in the world makes you tick. First Peter captures it when he says that the person, the people around you, would wonder about the hope yeah. that is within you. It's a picture of reverse evangelism, really. That you who are this hope, who that those who are without this hope actually come to you and say, I don't get you. Yeah. What are you on? <laughs> what makes you tick? You work in, with the same boss that I work with, but you're so gracious and so thankful and so content. And you're so joyous. What is going on? I've never lived by a neighbor who's so kind as you and so content and so joyful. I don't understand. Or maybe it's someone in your school where someone says to you, there's something about you. There's a depth of gratitude that bleeds its way out of the way that you talk about life. That's what we want to be doing here. Where does this drive us? Here it is. The key to shining, ladies, is holiness. Shining flows out of the manner of your living. And our key to holiness is worship. When my heart is filled with deep gratitude for the love that has been lavished on me, I want to obey. Amen. When I wake up in the morning in the morning and I know my neighbors aren't perfect, I know my family's not everything I wish it would be, I know that not all of my bills are paid, I know that I face things at work that are hard and sometimes I find days more difficult than others, but I wake up with deep gratitude, deep joy, a grateful heart. I wake up and I say, I'm loved. Thank you for your love. How could it be that you would love me so? How magnificent. I have reason to worship. I have reason to celebrate. I have reason to, to smile. I have reason to rejoice today. Even though this world is disordered, though all around the world gives way, he is all my hope and all my state. And that joy and that worship will make you want to live a holy life. And the holy, content life and the whole, uh, will make you shine like stars in the sky. In a crooked and twisted generation. The word here for crooked is familiar to you. Um, it's the word that we get from uh, the word scoliosis. You know? And that's the bending of the spine. It really means you live in a world, you live in a generation that's bent. That's so good. It's bent, so it's not operating the way it's supposed to. This is not the way God planned it. Yeah. I mean, he knew that this was going to happen, but in his desire, we would be whole. We wouldn't be bent. Mm -hmm. And how does, um, how does God respond to that twisted, crooked generation? Does he give up on us? No, ladies. He pursues us. He pursues the crooked. He pursues the twisted because he wants to make all things right. Amen. He wants to stand you to stand up straight, not be bent. He grabs his people, his children, you and me, and he throws us at the darkness so that everywhere 
Everywhere the bad people are, that's where you're intentionally purposed to be light, to help bind up the bent ones, to help them to stand up straight, to help them to have hope and a future. He sent you. We're complaining, and if our attitude stinks, they don't want what we have. Right. Now, here's the deal, though. This passage has to drive us to Jesus. Maybe you've listened this evening and you say, How could I ever, ever, ever even think about living a complaint free life? That seems impossible. And you're right. <laughs> It is impossible. And that's why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another on a regular basis. Jesus lived that life, that perfect life. Remember, he went to the um, he went to the cross without saying a word. Jesus was the example of one who did not complain. From Isaiah 53, we heard that this morning. Yeah. Jesus lived that life on your behalf. It's God who works in you to will and to work for your for his good pleasure. If anyone had the right to stand up and say, I deserve better, it was Jesus. But he never did. Because his joy, the joy of his heart was to do the Father's will, and he did that will for you. It was his substitutionary work on the cross he was accomplishing righteousness on your behalf. Righteousness that you could never accomplish. So that you could stand in your brokenness, stand in your selfishness, stand in your self-focusedness, and say, oh Lord, please help me to be filled with hope because of your life, your death, your resurrection. He will never turn his back on you. He will turn towards you with forgiving, enabling, delivering grace. And he will not stop. He will not quit. He will not relent. Until one day your mouth is filled with nothing but praise. Amen. Because your heart is filled with nothing but worship. And so we hold fast to the word of life. We hold fast to the gospel that is our hope. The gospel is a fresh start. The gospel is a new beginning. You're a new creation. The old has gone. If you think, I don't have it. I'm never going to make it. There's newness. It's not, um, it's not enough to say, oh, I got my lamp lit. My lamp lit. That's good now, right? I can just go kind of be in my room. <laughs> We would offer this hope to others because we know that the homeless man on the street needs the gospel of grace. He needs the word of life. The hopeless person in the hospital needs the word of life. The college student needs the word. The mom overwhelmed with parenting needs the word of life. The family who doesn't know how to pay their bills needs the word of life. 
Ladies, if you have hope in Christ in your life, you have been picked up and you've been thrown so that the message of grace and the glory of Christ will sprinkle itself everywhere that twisted brokenness of sin are. Matthew 5, 14 and 16 talks about the concept where he says, we're to live as light in the world, and it says, you're a light. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do you light a lamp and put it under a basket. No, you put it up on a lampstand. And a light gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Our lives are to be the platform for the gospel. Because the way that God has worked right throughout all time is the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word is to become flesh in our lives and we're to be like live wires, literally, that when people come into contact with us, with, with li- that we're the live ones and they're the dead ones, and we transfer the very power of God to those who are dying. <coughs> so, please, what are the areas of your life that you find yourself striving about, whining about, stressing about? Maybe it's those things that cause you to be shaken that we talked about earlier. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've given your life to him, then your identity is to be found in becoming like the Lord Jesus Christ. A flawed, an imperfect, but covered by him. And you prove that you are indeed a child of God by your blameless, innocent behavior that is above reproach, even though you live in the midst of a crooked and perverse culture. In doing so, you not only prove that you belong to God as his child, but you impact those around you with hope. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, haven't taken that step, that step to surrender your life to the Lord, then your lamp is unlit. But ladies, I believe that you are primed and ready. Yes. Some of you, that, that lamp, if it's an oil lamp, your, you know, your little wick has been dipped in that oil and it's being turned up every single day, and it's ready to be lit. It's the night. You're ready to experience that freedom that the Lord has for you. You're ready to experience the joy of the Lord, to turn from your complaining and turn to praise. Your bentness. You're ready to be bound up so that you can stand up straight again. Crookedness, depravity into holiness, righteousness, and hope. Let me pray for us. God, you called us into fellowship with your Son, Jesus Christ, and you are faithful. You are a good father. You lead us in the way we should go. You guide and direct our paths. In the midst of a crooked and depraved generation, you shined the light of Christ through a sister or a brother who led us 
to receive, to help us receive you. And God, you are still doing that work. You are sending us out that we would be light to a dark world. God, we're not a holy huddle. We don't just gather for our own selves. God, we gather to be empowered, equipped, to be sent ones. Just as you came, Christ, to seek and to save the lost, Lord, may we have eyes to see those who are sick, those who are hurting, those who are lacking wholeness, and may we, we sense that you are taking us to speak the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is the power to save. Even now as we spend time worshiping you, Lord, would you transform our hearts from grumbling and complaining to thankfulness, gratefulness, awe of who you are? And you're strong and powerful in your heart. Amen. Four or five years back, she was 
in the very chair that some of you are in. And God grabbed her from her dark place and he shined his light in her. And now she's a little light reflecting Jesus. We want to open up the altar because there's some women here who have not accepted Jesus, who have not said yes. God has been doing everything, chasing after you. He's relentless. He's throwing you those love letters. He's looking for you. Don't ignore him. He's, he's, he's for you, not against you. Don't ignore him. What are you afraid of? We don't do all of this to put on a, a good show. We, we do this, like Amber says, to help the bent ones. Because we know that you're, 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 you're hurting and you're broken without him. And, and Christ wants to come and heal you by his blood. And I'm pleading with you to see that Christ is beautiful. What have you been looking for? He's satisfied. all our stories, all our messages throughout this weekend. And it's been Jesus. <laughs> it's been Jesus. Bloody, bloody and bruised and broken and, and he gave everything for you. And on that cross, he was thinking about you. Don't let another day go by.
Then the Lord told us to go to someone close to them. Close to them. And Father, we just pray right now, Holy Spirit, you're the one that opens up the eyes. We can talk to her blue in the face. We can try to pull people, but you're the one that convicts us of sin. You're the one that brings us to that place, Lord, of surrender. And I pray tonight even for the woman who has known Jesus and has strayed away. He's come back for you. He brought you here. He loves you so much. You're his daughter. Nothing you can do can turn him away. Nothing you can do can chase him away. No dark place that you can go into. He expels the darkness.
here again. Stay here. And then we'll just wrap up by getting ready to head out afterward for our bonfire. So nice. Like that. Okay. Does that sound good? Thank you.
said it's right outside that we'll see it.
this far off, like, like he's not ever present in how like, he helped that engage or whatever. <laughs>